0: All right. Welcome back to the Victory Degree podcast. I say that I'm excited for every episode, but I think this one, uh, I think this one's a bit different. I think my excitement level is a little bit higher uh, for today's guest. We have the one and only Greg Coleman. Greg, thanks so much for coming on, man.
1: It's good to be with you, man. Hey, listen, in this day and time, it's good to be anywhere.
0: Absolutely. That is that is well said. That is well said. Um, Greg, I said that I'm, I'm more excited than usual for this episode, and that couldn't be more true. I stumbled across you actually on Twitter, funny enough. Uh, X now, I guess whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And I started to uh, to look into your journey a bit and did some research. And I was like, I have to get this guy on the podcast to talk through his experiences, to talk through everything that he's seen, everything that he's been through, uh, and to hopefully gain a little insight into the mind of Greg Coleman, so that hopefully people who are listening uh, can maybe take some things away and apply it to their own lives. You know,
1: Nick, talking about going into the mind of of Greg Coleman, that could be a dangerous place, Uh, you know, because there are some some crevices, there are some holes, there are some experiences that, uh, man, sometimes I may not even want to go back to visit those.
0: So I guess we will uh, we will tread lightly as we explore, uh, <laughs> explore the many memories and experiences of one Greg Coleman. <laughs> um, Greg, I figured a good place for us to start. Um, born in Jacksonville, Florida. For those who might not be aware of who you are or what you've accomplished, uh, 12-year career in the NFL. You had stints with the Cleveland Browns. Uh, your longest tenure was with the Minnesota Vikings from 1978 to 1987. Uh, you had a short stop in our nation's capital with the Redskins. You went to Florida A&M University. Uh, you were originally drafted by the Bengals in 1976. All in all, you had a 12-year career in the NFL. Post-NFL, uh, you did the Vikings radio broadcast for, I believe, 21 years.
2: Um, that is correct.
0: You, you are now a professional speaker. Uh, you are in the 2021 class, uh, Hall of Fame class, uh, for the Black College Football Hall of Fame. Uh, Incredible accomplishment. But I figured we start in Jacksonville. Uh, We're all started for you. And I want us to go back to your childhood. Um, Maybe take us back to your experience growing up in Jacksonville um, and some of the things that that you went through and maybe even the relationship that you had with your family.
1: Well, um, it all starts with family. And um, growing up on the west side of Jacksonville in a place called Mixon Town. Uh, and to go to mixing town, you had to know somebody because that was, uh, that was a neighborhood that protected its own, looked after its own, uh, against quote unquote, foreign s- substance and foreign characters. Um, so we're a close knit community. We're a tight knit community. Everybody knew uh, each other. Sports was huge in that community. Um, and as a little shorty, you know, we st- Uh, We looked to follow in the footsteps of the older guys. Um, You know, dad played softball with, uh, in, in the, uh, in the city park there. And, um, and, uh, and not being a very big kid, not very fast growing up and did not like the sight of blood. I was always the last guy chosen, whether it was baseball or football or or whatever we did. Um, But, but learned some things through that, and, and um, lo and behold, one day out, just kind of kicking pop cans over uh, over the fence, and then started uh, when I got a football, uh, cut the top of the pop or the beer can off, and used it as a tee. So as a result, uh, you know, made a homemade tee and started kicking the balls over the electric wires in front of the house. And then start kicking the ball over the houses, uh, learn to, uh, was self-taught as a punter, uh, start punting the balls over the house. And lo and behold, I've, uh, I found out that it was a gift. It was a talent that you know, pfft, you know, most of the guys in the neighborhood wanted to be the running backs and the quarterbacks and all of the, the elite positions. But I was content being the punter uh, for both teams. So in, on fourth down, instead of throwing them out, uh, I would kick uh, for both teams. Uh and 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 that skill set continued to grow uh in into Pop Warner, uh where I was a punter and place kicker there. Uh we moved to the uh, north side of Jacksonville and uh in my my sixth grade year, sixth, seventh grade, uh still practicing that craft of punting and kicking, there was one of my classmates, a guy by the name of Gus Williams. And Gus was actually one of my first coaches. We're in the same class. Uh, Gus may have been a a year older, but he took a liking to me for whatever reason. And and he would come over to the house and knock on the door. Hey, Miss Coleman, is Greg home? Uh, we got to practice. And um, Gus practiced me. We worked out. We punted. We kicked. We even built goalposts in the backyard. And he would come on, Gopher. You, you, you got this. You got this. Go for it. Come on, go for Come on. And for the low, for the longest time, I never knew why he called me Gopher. And fast forward a whole lifetime, uh, we finished from the same high school, uh, Range High School in Jacksonville, and we now attend the same church. And in last year when we migrated back to Jacksonville, I said, Gus, why in the ham fat did you call me Gopher? He said, go from it. Go for it. Go for it. You got this. And he was an encourager. Uh, He was a a motivator in in to to know Gus is to love Gus. And uh, through that encouragement as a little shorty. So I talk about uh, in the book, talk about the power of words, uh, because there are some words that you can remember as a little shorty, uh, either from your parents or your coaches or or even the neighborhood kids uh so uh, i i used that as fuel to fire and uh on to uh high school at range high school in jacksonville uh grew a little bit not a whole heck of a lot but uh my i was a defensive end in high school if they had been keeping stats about quarterback sacks for kids in high school back in the day back in the uh you know early to mid 70s my, my name might be up there because I've developed some pretty good speed uh, so all I would to do is quarterback sacks and in, in kick and punt. But uh, I can remember distinctly one drill, one practice. Uh, I really didn't want to uh, come down and, and slam the guard, the pulling guard, to close the gap for the linebacker to scrape and make the tackle. So I would just ole in and, and <laughs> the, the tackle and, and get our linebacker killed. And, and my coach, uh, Jimmy Johnson, Hall of Fame coach, uh, here in Jacksonville, he, he and the defensive coordinator, hey, get out of my drill. You just, you know, you're not going to do it right. Get out of the drill and go take this bag of balls up over on the other field and see if you can flip the field. Well, that was the the start uh, of being specific about punting and kicking. Um, you know, family, my dad was uh, happened to be the uh, the first African-American salesman in the city of Jacksonville at downtown pennies. Uh, mom was one of the first African American EKG technicians, uh, at a local hospital, St. Vincent's hospital here. Um, so, you know, family, uh, faith and football were, were synonymous, uh, growing up as a, as a young kid in Jacksonville. Um, I just enjoyed being a uh a, a teenager a young person here in Jacksonville ran uh ran track i was also a hurdler and talking about talking about words and talking about uh coaching and talking about those life lessons uh through a journey i can remember uh, my junior year um it was a regional track meet in the top 4 in that regional track meet would go to the state meet and I'm a junior, and I'm running up against, you know, some of the top seniors in the area. Uh, I can remember Kenny Lambert from from Andrew Jackson, uh, James Rackley of Robert E. Lee. Uh, those were the two of the top guys in the state, two of the top hurdlers in the state. And we line up, and man, they shoot the gun, and I'm right there with them. And the whole time, I'm just, I'm just so close. Uh, but I came in third. Rackley falls at the tape. You know, it was the day before technology and track and field and videotape and all of those things. Long story short, whoever had my lane said that I was fifth. And clearly, everybody in the stadium knew that I was third. And I'm excited because as a junior, I'm going to go to state track meet and compete with these seniors. Well, I called my coach. I said, "Coach, uh, Coach James Day. Uh a, a very, very dear coach, mentor, friend, father figure. I said, Coach, you gotta go to the clerk of the course and get this straight because I was clearly third and his wife and the kids, everybody in the stands. Hey man, Coleman was third. He was third. So I don't know what the guy who had my lane was doing. He just lost focus. Long story short, uh Coach Day comes up to me and I'm thinking that he's gonna go and get this thing squared away, get it straight. He looks at me square in the eye and he said, Coleman, I'm not going to the clerk of the course. I'm not going anywhere. He said, because you should have been first. And he turned around and walked away. And after I, you know, called him a few other names under my breath and, you know, uh, sucked up my tears and, and, uh, got myself together. I said, okay, if that's how you want to play it, I'll never be last again. Uh, so going into my senior year, Eleven. I never lost another race uh, in the 120 hurdles or the 180 lows, which they were running back then. So those were those were lessons,
2: tough lessons. Um, but I believed him, and I used that fuel to fire. Used disappointments. Um, used a lot of things. Uh, in that
1: journey in that young journey, uh, that served me well, uh, had a, a taking coach at Florida and n after graduating, uh, I'll, I'll digress just a moment, uh, state champion in the hurdles. We were 10 and zero uh, in our football year My my quarterback, my high school quarterback, Don Gaffney, uh, was the first, uh, black quarterback at the university of Florida. And that was a big deal back then, uh, SEC quarterback, Uh, we were going to be a package deal. And I said, cap, you know, wherever you go, I'm going to go wherever I go, you're going to go. Uh, long story short, the, uh, coaches, one of the coaches came up and said, Greg, we, uh, we've just got our alumni base ready to accept the fact that we're going to have a black quarterback at the university of Florida. I don't think we can have a black kicker at the same time. Disappointment, but I said, Hey, I get it. Cap, you go to university of Florida. Coach Bobby Lane came from Florida A&M, came down, sat at my table and said, "Miss Coleman, uh, we don't have a scholarship to give Greg to go to uh, Florida A&M. Uh, we don't have money to buy him a car. We don't have a scholarship to give his girlfriend. And I'm not saying that's what the other schools were doing back at that time. But he said, and if he comes to FAMU, he can run track. He can kick and punt till his heart is content. And if he goes to class, he'll graduate. My mom said, that sounds pretty good. And he said, oh, by, by the way, Miss Colvin, we'll, we'll give him three meals a day. Uh, so he'll never go hungry at FAMU. My mom said, have you seen how much this boy, give me that damn pen. Let's sign these papers right now. So I, I laugh at that because, you know, that was a, a, a turning point, a pivotal uh, point, a juncture in my young life, uh, going to Florida and m and at practice, uh, out kicking, punting. And uh, I was kicking the ball right down the middle of the field. And my kicking coach was also the receiver coach, Pop Kittles. And Pop said, well, baby, um, why are you kicking the ball down the middle? I said, well, Pop, that's where he's standing. He said, well, hell, baby, Why why don't you make him work for his supper? He said, why don't you kick it to the right, kick it to the left, make him run for it. And he said, I guarantee you, Greg, if you do it on a consistent basis, they'll find a place for you. At the next level, and I was stupid enough to believe those words again—the words of my coach, high school coach, Coach Day, words of Coach Pop Kittles. Um, Words are so powerful, man. Uh, So I don't take them for granted, and that's why I'm very, very careful about the words that come out that come out of my mouth about myself, or even about uh, about someone else. I uh, I had a great experience. It was a great experience at FAMU. And if I had to do it all over again, I would do the same thing. I had some great instructors, great coaches, nurturing teachers. And I'll give you, um, I'll, I'll give you another example. Uh, I remember kicking five field goals in one game to beat Alabama State or Alabama AM, and somebody. I go to class. Everybody's giving me high fives and stuff. And my English teacher was uh, Sadie Gafer. And Sadie Gaither was the wife of legendary coach at Florida NM, Jake Gaither, Hall of Fame coach. And she said, are you what, what is going on here? And the, the kids in the class told me, so you that Coleman boy that's been kicking the ball? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, well, why didn't you tell me? I said, well, Ms. Gaither, I'm just coming to class to do what I'm supposed to do. And, and she said, what is your study hall? I said, well, and I told her and she said, you come to my house every Wednesday night. At seven o'clock, I'm going to make sure that you have all your assignments because you're not going to be like the rest of these boys that are playing football. You're going to graduate. You're going to graduate on time. That, that kind of nurturing, that kind of uh, care uh, for who you were, didn't care about whether I played football or not. She just wanted to make sure that I was going to graduate because of the investment of time, investment of resources. Uh, so uh, I had so many great memories. Uh, at Florida A&M, my head coach Rudy Hubbard, who came from Ohio State, was a product of Woody Hayes. And I can remember one game; um, he chose not to go for field goals. We were playing our arch rival uh, Bethune-Cookman, and we were actually playing down in the um, the Daytona Speedway. There used to be a football track, a football field in the middle of the Speedway, in the infield, and he wouldn't go for the field goals for 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 whatever the reason. So we get back to campus, and I was ticked because we lost by three points. And I'm going to go in Coach Hubbard's office on Sunday morning when we get back. Coach, I need to talk to you. He said, yeah, I need to talk to you too. He said, sit down. He said, I know you're pissed off. He said, I'm pissed off too. He said, but you know why I didn't go for the field goals? He said, because I watched you in practice that whole week. I watched you at pregame practice, and I don't know what was going on. He said, you were hitting them right, left. You were missing extra points and all of those things. He said, he said, Greg Coleman, you good. He said, but you think you're better than you are. He said, and some days you are. He said, but I don't need you some days. He said, I need you every day. I got to be able to depend on you. I got to be able to trust you. Man, and those words hit me like a ton of bricks. If my coach can't trust me, if my teammates can't trust me, what good am I to the team? So as a a result, another lesson learned to be dependable—that my teammates that I could depend on me. So that shifted my entire career as a punter and a place kicker, along with those lessons from Pop Kittles. And I know that was a long-winded answer, you know, to talk about uh, the 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 genesis of of who Greg Coleman is. And there's so much more uh, to that. I was a part of a a group of students uh, back in the late 60s, early mid to late 60s to integrate uh, a middle uh, what we call them junior high schools back in the day. Um, Rebound junior high school. It was it was very, very difficult time uh, during integration. And even before that, Nick, let me go back because my Pee Wee Pop Warner team won the city championship and every city champion gets an opportunity to play in the Gator Bowl. So we get on the bus and we're going to play the champions from the other league, the other side of the town, the other side of the river. And coach comes back and he's got this look on his face. He says, guys, we're not going to be able to play
2: today because the coaches from the other team don't want to play a bunch of N-words. and." that was a very very difficult time for young teenage kids 13 14 years old uh to be hit
1: with the stench of racism in sports so we carried the baggage of racism growing up as 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 young shorties having to overcome those things having to overcome the obstacles of of a coach who i thought at the time did want to fight for me, but in essence was giving me another stu- another, another way of looking at life because he knew, I'm not just preparing you for a race, I'm preparing you for life. And those are some lessons that i learned that served me well through this journey called life so far uh, in these 60, uh, 69 years that God has has kept me on this earth, and they have served me well. Um... So there's been a lot to this young journey prior to uh, the National Football League. So I I know that's a long-winded journey, a long-winded answer. Um, but, you know, you can get a little bit more insight uh, in the book when you pick it up.
0: Greg, this is why I wanted to have you on. Um, again, because I think a lot of your journey is fascinating. And so many of these stories that, that you just told, I mean, there's so much to unpack I think I want to go back to something that you said at the beginning, um, which was uh, your father and your mother and the success that they had and the breakthroughs that they were able to have in their respective fields as first African-Americans to accomplish X, right? You you know, your father in the sales business. Um, You were the first African-American punter in the NFL, full-time punter in the NFL do you ever look – did you ever look to your parents as inspiration to go and accomplish something as great as being the first African-American punter in the NFL, having that breakthrough? Was their success a blueprint that you used to then fuel your own success or did you have other role models growing up?
1: Well, we had We – first, it, it started with mom and dad, looking at what they had to go through, what they had to overcome. Because still, we're talking about the, the mid to late 60s. Uh, where integration and racism was still prominent down in the South. Um, my dad taught me we had some core, he had some core values. And I watched him as he navigated, you know, during his time at J.C. JCPenney's, they put him in the basement in the corner. Well, when people found out that that J.C. Penney's had a black salesman, man, they would bring stuff from the, the third floor, the second floor, the main floor, down to the basement to have my dad wait on him. because he treated people with humanity. And Pot told me something. He said, son, here's what I try to live by. You know, there are three things
2: with people. Ask, can I help you? Always say please and thank you. Those core values I
1: still use today that I instilled into my kids. And my mom gave me a level of confidence. She would always say, she said, baby, it's a sorry dog. That won't wag its own tail. And there's a
2: difference between confident and cocky.
1: Arrogance and confidence live on the same street. One on one side and one on the other. And you got to know which house you're going into. Because arrogance can lead to some, uh,
2: some disappointments in life. But confidence. With confidence comes patience. With patience
1: comes confidence. So there were so many things that mom and dad taught me. Now, I didn't start out, well, maybe I did. I knew the significance of what they had did, of what they had done, their journey. Because I remember writing in my high school yearbook, you know, you have your name, uh, your, the activities and your ambition. I said that I wanted to be a, a professional kicking specialist in the National Football League. That's what I wrote in, in my yearbook. That's what I said in my yearbook. And even some of my team, hey, man, you must be crazy. There ain't no black punters and kickers in the National Football League. Well, that's, that ain't my problem. You know, I was, I was, I was focused. I had belief uh, in my ability. And I, as I talked about those coaches <clears throat> who came along the way, who helped nurture from a mental standpoint, from a physical standpoint. Um, so, yeah, absolutely, they played a, 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 a pivotal part uh, in growing up, seeing what they had to overcome, seeing the obstacles that they had to go through. <clears throat> and I look at life as being a um,
2: like a race of one, 120 hurdles. You have to start somewhere. And the key is getting
1: over the first hurdle. And once you get over that first hurdle, you say, man, I got it. Mm. No. There's some stuff called life in between those hurdles. And then you get to an, another hurdle. You know, it could be a disappointment of of of, of school and um you know, you didn't you didn't make the uh, the baseball team. But you keep running in between those hurdles. In each hurdle that you go over, you gain more and more confidence as you get closer to the finish line. Now in, in track and field, yes, you have 120 100, today 110 meters, 110 meters to run that race of hurdles. but in life,
2: you have a lifetime of hurdles. but the more you practice getting over those obstacles, the more determination the more
1: endurance, the more perseverance, the more resiliency that you learn to get over the hurdles of life. You know, my job as a punter was to, to flip the field. And some people look at punting as an act of surrender. I choose to look at punting as a strategic move, sometimes to back up, to get your team out of trouble, and put the other team in harm's way. And I did that by kicking it to the corners. Because if I kick it right down the middle of the field, that return guy has options. But if I pin him in to the right or to the left sideline, like Howard Cosell would say on Monday Night Football, Greg Coffin Corner Coleman puts one out of bounds at the five-yard line again. That puts our team in at an advantage. So I looked at all of these sports metaphors and Running hurdles and getting over
2: obstacles and flipping the field to the corners. That's what I tend to live my life by. You know, uh, having that
1: perseverance, having that resilient mindset. Because, you know, if, if you look at a punt as being a defeatist strategy, no, you're looking at it all wrong. You give up, the, you give up possession just for a moment to put the other team in harm's way to limit their offensive output. And now you get the ball back. Now you are in a better field position. Now you can maneuver. You've been that, that strategic point for your team where people think, Oh man, we're giving up. We, We we're punting. I'll go, I'll go to the fridge. I'll go to the bathroom. I, I don't ever go to the bathroom on fourth down. I don't ever go to the fridge on fourth down because flipping the field, On fourth down, there's so many things, so many different things that can happen on fourth down. You can have a great punt. You can have a fake punt like I did a couple of times. You can have a punt return. You can have a punt block. There is no one play that so many different things can happen on fourth down. So when the punter comes out on the field, man, don't go to the fridge to get another beverage. (laughs) You know, a lot of great things can happen on fourth down.
0: And I, to your point, I think um, I, we had Aaron Schatz on the podcast. He's a, a analytics um, guru for the NFL, and he talked a lot about, you know, recently the NFL has has spent a lot of time looking at analytics on punts, on returns. Um, I think people are, you know, starting to realize, to your point, how important of a play it really is in the football game. We just saw it. I don't know if you caught the Bills-Dolphins game this past yes. weekend. Mm -hmm. That punt return for a touchdown, that completely flipped the entire game. Absolutely, it did.
1: And here's the thing. The return guy, I can't remember his name, he went back to the six-yard line, which is a no-no, to go Mm -hmm. back to to retrieve a punt. But sometimes in life you have to take calculated risks. And he took a risk, and his teammates made the necessary blocks. And before you know it, that, that one play, change the entire course of the game
0: right greg i want to go to another topic that is extremely prevalent in life and that's disappointment and you talked a lot about resilience about grit about the hurdles of life with that inevitably comes disappointment and i want to bring up two examples in your life that you've experienced great disappointment one that you already brought up um, in my eyes, the Pee Wee story, not being able to to play in the Gator Bowl, uh, I think was a big source of disappointment, um, especially at such a young age, like you said, experiencing racism to that degree. Um, and then also in 1976, when you were drafted by the Bengals uh, and mm-hmm. didn't make the team, perhaps another big source of disappointment in your life. Can you connect, I guess we'll start off with the Pee Wee story and how... As such a young man, that is a traumatic experience for many, and it could alter someone's life for the worse. For you, it seemed like it had the opposite effect, or you at least interpreted it uh, to be perhaps a positive. So lead me through your mindset, and obviously you had coaches and mentors along the way that maybe shaped your mindset around this, but for you to come out of that, a stronger man, and for you to continue to lead with love, to lead with putting humanity at the forefront of everything you do. Um, wh- what was your mindset after that experience and, and how has that shaped kind of who you are? It, it, it was
1: not only mine, it was ours mm. because we were community. We had, we had, as you mentioned, we had coaches, we had mentors, we had parents. We had all of those factors that were coaching us, encouraging us to not give up, not to quit because off that same peewee football team, was the first African-American punter in the National Football League, was the first and second African-American quarterback at the University of Florida because we had another kid that went to our high school, Terry LeCount. He was the second African-American quarterback uh, to, to, to play at the University of Florida. Not only play at the University of Florida, Terry LeCount was my teammate for the Minnesota Vikings. I mean, think about that. Two kids off the same Pee Wee football team Went to different colleges, different experiences, but one and the same wind up on the same football team from the same neighborhood, Scott Park in Jacksonville, because we were all nurtured. We chose not to let the stench of racism dictate who we became. There were, when There were 12 of us that went on to college off that same football team. There were a couple of doctors, several lawyers off that same football team. There were five of us that put on an NFL or USFL uniform, five off the same team in the same neighborhood, same Scott Park. So, man, we, we did some incredible things. Our, our parents, our coaches, our mentors, our teachers did some amazing things of us encouraging each other. So we chose, we made a decision. In life, you have a choice to make decisions that can either build you up. Or tear you down. So we were a product of those encouraging words. I think I told you earlier. You know how important words are. There's a, there's a scripture that I read that says there's life and death in the power of the tongue. So I'm very, very careful. I mean, and, and I use it in every, even in golf. Even when I wasn't a good golfer. I would never say, man, I, I hate this shot. I hate hitting over water. No, I just hate. I can hit it over water. I can do. I can do all things, and that was my mindset. The disappointment of not making it uh, after being drafted by Cincinnati. I made a mistake of running the forty. I was just coming off a of track season, doing the draft, so I ran a four four forty. So when I got to camp, I ran everybody with, uh, for the most part, with the exception of Isaac Curtis and uh, Paul Brown says, "Hey man, you got too much speed. We're gonna try you at wide receiver, Coach." I've never played wide receiver. Well, they would run me to my heart content. We'll go over there with Isaac Curtis and Chip, uh, Chip Myers and, 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 and Ken Anderson was a quarterback and they would just run me on the goal patterns because I was outrunning everybody on the team. That didn't work out, but I would still have to compete against Chris Barr, who they drafted in the second round, Pat McAnally, uh, Dave Green, and all of those guys who were resting during all of the course of practice. So it wasn't a fair fight, long story short. Disappointed, I got cut. Came back to Jacksonville, but because of Sadie Gaither and those other coaches and, and teachers at Florida NM, I graduated uh, almost with a double major. And um, I taught high school history and I coached a little bit, but uh, I told the coaches and the kids, hey, I'm going to give this one more shot, um, th- this National Football League. So I worked my behind off and I practiced. Uh, I remembered those encouraging words from my parents, from uh, coaches, from Gus Williams. Uh, come on, go for go for it, man. One more, one more. And I got an opportunity to uh, to go to camp uh, with the Cleveland Browns. And, and Forrest Greg was the new head coach for Cleveland. And I ran the 40 again. And um, he said, wow, you got a lot of speed. I said, coach, if you're going to put me at another position, just cut me now. Let me go because – and I explained to him what happened in Cincinnati. He said, no, uh, if – if you can do this, you'll just have you'll just be the fastest punter in the National Football League," I said. Okay, he said, "Can you handle this, Coach? All I need is an opportunity, because the previous year, the Browns drafted a kid by the name of Tom Scaladini out of Ohio State, second round, second round pick. Scaladini did not want to punt in Cleveland, the mistake by the lake. He wanted to punt in Detroit, that had a dome stadium. So there was this ongoing battle between the owner, Art Modell, and the agents of, of Tom Scaladini. And we're getting close to the near the uh, last uh, preseason game, and in, in Forrest Greg said, Greg Coleman, look me straight in the eye. He said, can you handle this? I said, coach, I can handle this. He said, okay, you're going to be my punter to hell with Tom Scaladini. And Forrest Gregg gave me an opportunity to punt for the Cleveland Browns as a rookie. Now, uh, that, that didn't set well with Art Modell, um, so at the end of the season, Forrest was let go. As a result, Sam Ruttigliano comes in as a new coach. I say, Sam, why don't you let me go now? I know how this is going to work. No, 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 the best man is going to get the job. Well, Art Modell goes back into the draft and drafts a quarterback punter, a kid by the name of Johnny Evans out of North Carolina State. Well, that preseason, I led the league. 48.9 yards. Johnny Evans couldn't hold my helmet. Uh, you know, I know this, this is a family show, so I'll keep it that way. Uh, long story short, um, the Friday before the first pre- uh, first regular season game, I get a call from the Browns. I said, Greg, Sam wants to see you. And he says, bring your playbook. I said, well, hell, I, I'm a punter. I don't have a playbook. I said, and I go in and I said, Sam, I told you this was going to happen. I told you to let me go. I said, Greg, it, it was... It was it was out of my hand. I said, well, Sam, it was out of your hands when Art Modell went back and drafted Johnny Evans. It wasn't Johnny's fault.
2: He said, "Because I said, Sam, I believed you. I believed you. He said, Greg, I'm not worried you'll get another shot in the
1: National Football League. I knew that, but I'd wasted some time. Wasted part of the journey, as I thought that it was wasted journey, but it wasn't. God was just preparing me. I tried out with three or four other different teams, Buffalo, uh, New England, San Diego, and and Philadelphia. We were still living in Cleveland. My wife, we were expecting our first child. We were still living in Cleveland. And it was week seven in the National Football League. And I remember watching a game between the Los Angeles Rams and the Minnesota Vikings. Now, if you go back and Google... That game in 1977 was a game, no, 1978, that um, Jack Youngblood picked up Tommy Kramer, slammed him on his head, and he was concussed. He had a concussion out in the middle of the field. He was convulsions and all that kind of stuff. I go to my ninth-floor apartment window, and I'm screaming at God. I say, you lied to me. You said if I was faithful, if I prayed, if I did— all of the things, read my word, that you would give me the desires
2: of my heart. I said, man, where are you? I just want to play football. And I'll even play football for the Minnesota Vikings. And I close that ninth floor apartment window.
1: The next day I was going on an interview because money was getting short uh, with a bank where I was going to start a job. And I get home and my wife says, uh, do you remember what you said yesterday? that you'll even play for the Minnesota Vikings? She said, well, some some guy from Minnesota by the name of Frank Gilliam called here and they want you on a plane. They want you to come to Minnesota um, by Wednesday. God has a funny sense of humor. Now, the backdrop to that, when we were shorties back in Jacksonville, some of the guys... Love the purple people leaders. Well, I never wanted to play for Minnesota because every time you saw them, it was under the frozen tundra of metropolitan stadium in Bloomington, Minnesota. It was cold. Second reason, they wore black shoes. Now, you got to remember back in the, you know, all of the cool brothers, all the cool players were wearing white shoes. Joe Willie Namath, Billy White Shoes Johnson, Elmore Wright. And the third thing was they had a coach by the name of Bud Grant with piercing blue eyes that had his arms full walking up and down the sideline that didn't say much to anybody. Those were three factors that I said that I would never, ever, ever play for the Minnesota Vikings. Thus taking me back, be careful about what comes out of your mouth. Because as a child, I said I never wanted to play for the Minnesota Vikings. And it wasn't until I went to that ninth floor apartment window and humbled myself and said, God, I'll even play for the Minnesota Vikings the next day I got a call and I spent the next 10 years as a punter for the Minnesota Vikings.
0: Funny how life works. That is, um, that's an amazing story. And it's, it's so refreshing to hear you articulate your journey and how many times it seemed like you were down and out. And it seemed like you were never going to play professional football and yet you stuck with it. And I think, in today's day and age, where life seemingly happens so fast and everybody wants that overnight success, everybody wants to be that overnight sensation, um I think if people stopped and listened to the words that you were saying, I think they would maybe look back and say, "You know what? maybe if I stick with this for for a while, maybe you know I too can can achieve you know what my wildest dreams are so i think I think that's an incredible thing for people to take away.
1: Nick, I've got a friend, uh, uh, one of my speaking mentors, a guy by the name of Les Brown. And Les has a quote. And I didn't know this quote and I didn't hear this quote until much, much later in my journey. But Les has a saying. He says, hey, life is going to knock you on your behind. He say, it's going to knock you down. He said, but when life knocks you down, make sure that you land on your back. He said, because if you can look up, you can get up. So I've been knocked down a many a times, many a days, in many arenas of life. But if I can look up, I can get up, man. So those are words that I use even today. Yeah, there are disappointments. There are times that, you know, you're going to get blindsided. You're gonna, but hey, man, if I can look up, I can get up. And I keep getting up. I keep getting up. No matter how many times the referee, the, the referee of life is, is count, trying to count you out one. Two, three, man, if I can grab hold to the rope, if I can grab hold to a coach, if I can grab hold to a mentor, if I can grab hold to some encouraging words, man, I'm going to get back up and I'm going to get back in the game.
0: I love that. Um, Greg, I want to bring up uh, maybe another uh, instance in your life where you experienced disappointment. Um, And I'll I'll read a quote to you. Uh, This is coming from yourself. Uh, And this is you reflecting on your time with the Minnesota Vikings, uh, or at least a portion of it. So you said, uh, and I quote, for a long time, I kept my helmet on, hoping folks would think I was a dark-skinned white boy. You got stuff thrown at you, the adjectives that were hurled, monkey, the N-word. I read that and um, honestly left speechless. And I can't, for one, imagine what, what that must have felt like for you being in that position but once again, you persevered and you came out the other end an even better man. Uh, and so we talked a little bit about some of the, you know, some of the mindset that you had and the mentors that you use and the coaches that helped guide you along the way. But this specific instance, when you were already in the league, when when people knew that you were a good punter, when they saw the skills, and it's what's funny is when I think about it, these same fans that were saying that to you, they were maybe rooting for other you know, African American athletes on the same team, right? Maybe the wide receiver, you know, African American, you know, lad. He's going out there, he's performing, he's they're rooting him on. But for some reason, it was specifically you, the punter, that seemed like you got you got the short end of the stick. Um so if you don't mind, take us take us down that alley a little bit, what that experience was like for you. Well, I mean punters,
1: if you think about it, Nick, The position of punter and quarterback were not synonymous with African-American players. Hmm. You know, to see what Doug Williams and James Shaq Harris and Marlon Briscoe and all those other men who played that position had to go through um, and had to overcome. You know, I can remember uh, my last year in the league with Washington, uh, spending some time in in the training room with Doug Williams, because we both were at the tail end of our careers and had some bumps and bruises. And we were talking about the mere fact that it seemed that the black quarterback was overcoming that stigma of not being able to handle sophisticated offenses because the quarterback was viewed as a extension of the coach. It was like a son. The coach was a father. The son was a quarterback. Well, there are very few head coaches who had black sons. But they were, they were men who looked at humanity versus the color of your skin. So you fast forward, we have overcome that stigma of the African-American quarterback being able to handle complicated offenses. You look at uh, the majority of the, uh, a number of the quarterbacks that are playing in the uh, playoffs uh, this season, young African-American quarterbacks who are articulate, who are very, very smart, um, who who have a great gift for being leaders of men. Even though I was the first full-time African-American punter, that door still has not been opened, only to a very few. There's there's only one uh, kid that's punting in the African-American punter. That's Presley Harvin for the, uh, for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And when I was inducted into the Black College Football Hall of Fame, I invited Presley down uh, for that ceremony. And I said, "Press, I'm not putting any pressure on you, man, but you, know, you right now, you're the poster child for young African-American punters in high school and peewee in, in, in college who want to have that opportunity to see somebody who looks like them. I mean, there's another kid, Marquette King, when he was a co- uh, in college at Fort Valley State. Um, I went to watch him punt. He got my name and number from somebody. He said, man, I just want to know if I'm doing the right thing. And I went to Tallahassee. They were playing Florida A&M and watched him punt, had a fairly decent game. But afterwards, we talked. We exchanged numbers and kind of walked him through uh, the early stages of what it was going to take to be a success. baby, I'm not going to change you. You got here doing your thing. And Marquette was all pro punter uh, and still should be punting in the league right now. Uh, Some coach put out some dirty nasty on him and he's been blackballed for the most part. But the kid is, is led in the top punters when he was in the national football league because he had charisma, because he had some attitude. It's, it's, it's so, it's, it's so unfair when a punter, Pat McAnally would do some of the same antics and Marquette King would do some of those same things in dancing and strutting and, and, and just enjoying life. Pat McAnally is raised up and Marquette King is, is, is mitigated to putting in the XFL, trying to get that opportunity to come back to the NFL where he belongs, who certainly has the ability. Um, So those kinds of lessons, the notes that we would get. Now, most of the African-American players got nasty grams. It was before social media. I destroyed the majority of mine. And I think Jim Marshall may have a few. Alan Page may have a few. But all of us remember the nasty grams that we would get during the week. And some of these same people who sent the nasty grims were the same ones that were cheering when you put on that purple jersey.
2: But when you took it off from day to day during the weeks, you were just another black kid, a black young man in Minnesota. I mean, I look at the situation that happened with George Floyd several years ago.
1: And I look at, and I've
2: said that George Floyd could have been any any one of our players during that time. So, yes, we have come a long way.
1: But we have got so much further to come because this cancel culture has turned upside down and now it's almost like you've been given a license to hate, a license to be a bigot, a license to be a racist, a license
2: not to love your neighbor, not to have humanity. We're in a dangerous or dark place where we
1: are. I can remember doing some ministry on that same corner of 38th and Chicago many, many years ago with my current pastor here in Jacksonville. I would bring him up to Minnesota to work with uh, some other ministries up in the Twin Cities area. And I can remember one Thursday night we were on 38th and Chicago ministering, you know, ducking with gunshots and all of those things. And I would look down the street down to 38th and see the Metrodome. And it was so ironic that Billy Graham was having a crusade that same night, that same Thursday night.
2: While we were on 38th in Chicago, duck, ducking drive-bys, Billy Graham was in the cool confines of a hot summer night in Minneapolis. Two men, one, African, one black, one white, sharing God's same gospel to God's people but just differences. Different situations,
1: different times, but that does not make us different human beings
2: because when you cut both of us, what comes out of our veins? It's red. But we've got to come together and I don't know who is standing in the wings to help us get
1: back on track. But we've got to do whatever we can in our circle of influence in our community to be that, that light of hope. You know, Pete, Greg, why do you do what you do? Why do you, I mean, I just did a spot where we're going into our 25th year of, of, of our golf tournament that Eleanor and I have, have been doing up in the Twin Cities area. Our 25th year of raising close to $3 million to support young people. And it's through the YMCA because all of our kids are not going to hell in a handbasket. We've got some incredible young people doing some incredible things and all they need is
2: chance. All they need is a hope. All they need is just a little bit of help, just like we all did. So whatever light that you have, God didn't give it to you to put it up under a bucket to be hidden. Because somebody
1: may be depending on the light that you have to guide them down their path and their journey. So I tell everybody, you are significant, you are important, because you may be the only light, the only hope that people might see. And I say without hope, you know, hope is the the gasoline that fuels your faith. And without faith, we have nothing. So that's why most of the time whenever I sign off, <coughs> whether it's a podcast or interview, or I do this thing called Flip the Field Fridays.
2: <coughs> and every time I would say, keep hoping, keep trusting, and keep believing. Because I believe in all of us.
0: That's beautiful. Um <laughs> Truly a great message. Um, Greg, I want to go back to you mentioned young African-American quarterbacks in the playoffs. And then you mentioned the word leader. And the first person that came to mind uh, was a young is a young man by the name of CJ Stroud, uh, quarterback for the Texans. And I watched that guy go up on stage and I hear him talk. And it's like it's like I'm being sucked into the TV or the iPhone or or whatever I'm watching it on. You mentioned words at the beginning of this interview. You've mentioned words throughout this interview and the power that it holds over people. And he has a way with words um, that that just seems to, to attract people to him. Uh, that seems to convey his message in a way that is powerful, that is, that resonates with people. Um, he's he's a man of faith. Um, and and he brings that up, you know, in his interviews and uh in all his media that he does. Um you've been uh, around a lot of great leaders. You yourself are a great leader. Um, and we talked about the hate that still exists in this country and all over the world. And it's going to take a lot of strong leaders to lead us out of that world of hate and, and into a world of love, like you mentioned. And so I'm wondering from your perspective, um, looking at you know players like CJ Stroud and, and the players that you've been around and yourself, in your eyes, what makes a great leader? Um, what are some of the qualities that they have? What, is it something that you can pinpoint? Or is it maybe just a God-given ability that few of us have and, and the rest of us, you know, we, we just didn't get the, <laughs> the lucky draw?
1: <laughs>
0: That's a great question,
1: Nick, and I appreciate you asking that. First and foremost, when I talk to high school kids, and I've got a session here in a week or so talking to a a local school down here in in Jacksonville. I've always said that leadership is never defined by a position. Now, there are some positions that require leadership skills. (laughs) Excuse me. But you can have a quarterback. He's the natural leader of the team because he leads everybody in positions, knowing where everybody lines up. He's the leader of that team, but that doesn't necessarily make him a
2: leader of men. Number one, it starts with accountability. It starts with integrity. It starts with, it's not about me.
1: It's about us. I've often said that it's a difference between talking about teams there's a difference between playing on a team and playing for a team. When you have the ability to play for your teammate, that's a whole different ballgame. Button would always say, I can he said, touch, I can get anybody to <coughs> excuse me, to put on a purple helmet and play. He said, But we're not paid to play. We're paid to win. And when you don't win, changes are made. It's evident of what happened on Black Monday, uh, yesterday, um, c- several coaches, uh, four so far. Five. So it's a business. I was fortunate enough to see the game of football evolve from that sport to a multi-billion-dollar business. And I know I'm digressing from your original uh, question, and I'm going to come back to
2: it. The pressures to win in any professional sport is humongous. Much
1: more difficult than back during my days between the 70s and 80s. Um, but the one principle that has never changed is leadership. I never looked at my position and said, oh, Greg Coleman, you, you, you were just a punter. And I've had guys to say that. Man, shut up. You're a punter. What do you know? Well, I led my team through two work stoppages, two, through, two strikes in the National Football League. And Bud would say, Greg, I don't care. Whatever you do, whatever decision you guys make, if one goes out, everybody goes out. If one comes in, everybody comes in. And guys, we're looking for people. I don't care how much money you make. Sometimes people are looking for leaders. And a lot of times they come from the most inobvious place,
2: a punter. You know, we didn't have Cs that were on our jerseys back in the day, but
1: guys knew that they could depend on me, that they can trust me to do what I was supposed to do as a professional. But how many nights that I had to listen to them when things were not going? right with them and their spouse or their girlfriend or when the kids were sick, when all hell was breaking loose back at home. Those are things that are done in private, you know, and you, you have those trusted relationships with men and other coaches. I relish the mere fact, and I recognize where my help and where my strength comes from. It comes from God almighty. Because I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not good enough to be good. You know, it's his grace and mercy that has kept me. And it's that same grace and mercy that I tend to extend to other men because none of us are perfect. I am so far being away from perfect. Ask my wife and my kids. You know, we, we, we talk about <clears throat> we had a great time this holiday season, the Christmas season. Just talking about things of the past and what's important. Uh, to us now, I stepped away from the Viking broadcast for the simple reason of spending the last part of this journey with my family, uh, traveling to, we went to Italy this summer and just got back from Africa, you know, a couple of months ago, uh, <clears throat> taking trips, doing things that had I been tied up with the team, we would have missed making some of those amazing memories spending time with my grandkids, spending time with the kids. So there was nothing wrong uh, with the broadcast. I just made a, we made a decision because there's a lot of great journey behind us. For whatever journey that God has in front of us, we're going to do what we choose to do. And it's been a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, two years. I finally finished the book, Um, you know, got a chance again to, to go to Africa again, to do some ministry work, uh, to just see the world. Um, If we choose to get up and go play golf, we can do that. Uh, So it's, 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 God puts something in leaders that's special. And true leaders are a part of him of his DNA in his makeup, because that was the greatest leader of them all. And you talk about these young uh, players at the quarterback position. You mentioned CJ Stroud, man, what a gift to humanity. You may not be cheering. And I did not cheer for the Houston Oilers, um, the Houston Texans, whatever they call themselves now, (laughs) but I cheer for C.J. Stroud. I cheer for these young men that have different uniforms. And one of the biggest things that I do miss, post-game, working with our chaplain for the Vikings many, many years, I would lead our post-game prayer, where we would come to the middle of the field, both teams, and we would put aside the color of our jerseys,
2: and recognize the one true God that we all served. And to be to be a part of that leadership was phenomenal.
0: Uh, you know, just talking about CJ Stroud, um, what a mistake the Panthers made. I mean, you know, Bryce Young might <laughs> might end up, you know, being being all right. Um, he doesn't have a lot of weapons, didn't have a lot of weapons this year, but Man, if I was the owner of uh, or the GM of the Panthers, I'd be kicking myself for missing out on, um, <laughs> like you said, a great a great man and um, you know an even bigger talent in, in CJ Stroud. So I, I I hate to be a Panthers fan. I don't know I don't know how I would still be a fan if I was missing out on CJ Stroud. But um, it kind of like we talked about. Funny how life works out some way. You know, for some reason it was meant to be for CJ to go to Hook Houston and and mm-hmm. uh, ball up there, and he's doing a great job leading to the playoffs. And D'Amico Ryan's man. Let me tell you. Being a 49ers yep. fan, if you can tell from the hat, um, yep, I, I love D'Amico, and I was sad to see him go because he was uh, speaking again of leaders and leadership. I mean, that you know, mm-hmm. class class A example right there, mm-hmm. D'Amico Ryan's. Um, so I always root for D'Amico. Love that he's uh, he's been successful with Houston. Um, Greg, a couple more questions here, and then we'll we'll finish this off. Um, a big theme in your book. Is focus, and so you talk a lot about the power of focus. And as a punter, focus is of the utmost importance. Uh, Like you said, it 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 can flip a game. Um, it's you know it's it's a huge play. Um, talk to me a little bit about some of the things that were going on in your mind as you were getting ready to punt the ball, and and what I guess the importance of focus and how that played a role.
1: Before focus comes practice.
2: Hmm.
1: You have to practice. To a point, people say practice makes perfect. <clears throat> that's the biggest lie from hell. Perfect practice makes permanent. And that's why coaches have started to film practice. Because when you have a perfect practice, when you have a perfect punt, you want to see that. You want to visualize that. And that's why they show that perfect punt over and over. So visualization is a part of that. There are so many, so many little mechanisms that go into focus. So number one, the perfect practice, the perfect punt, the visualization. And then to see that over and over and over again, mentally, you dream about it, you eat it, you sleep it. Because you want to be able to wake up out of your sleep and go hit that perfect punt. It may not be 54 yards, it may not be 44 yards, it could be 34 yards, but it's 34-yard punt to the corners, pinning them in. That's what you see, that's what you visualize. And then your technique the practicing of your technique, short left, right, boom, extending the arm, shoulders forward. All of those things you cannot think about during the course of a punt. So there's a process that you go through. And all I used to think about are three things.
2: Extend the arm, shoulders forward, and follow through. Extend the arm, because if I extend my arm, my shoulders are
1: going to be forward. Where punters get into. the... F- trouble if they got a shoulder back, the ball is gonna drop on the inside and you gotta come over and side swipe. So those are the kind of little nuances that I would focus. I would be so involved with the game and cheering and encouraging my teammates, getting them Gatorade and water and all of that stuff. But on third down I had to come back and I had to focus on what I was supposed to do. Which way is the wind blowing? You know, is it a crosswind? Do they have two deep? Do they have one deep all of those things, do you are they going to come with a 10-man rush, nine-man rush? Are they coming from my strong side, weak side? All of those things, and then make a determination, am I going to kick it left, am I going to kick it right? All of those things come in a millisecond, and you got to be able to process it. So I understand what quarterbacks do when they get the ball, they snap, they're reading the defense, the process that they have to go through. We as punters go through the same thing. And the fundamental focus of what we do is done and measured in three to four opportunities per game. You look at a quarterback who can come out and make mistakes, throw two interceptions in the first half, but comes back, throw the game winning touchdown in the fourth quarter. Everybody's forgotten about those two interceptions. But for the punter, our mindset has to be one of resilience. Because if we have a, a not-so-good punt, we got to let that go. It's got to be like a relief pitcher. What's the next important thing? The next pitch. So the next punt is the next most important thing for us. Not only that, if you have the opportunity to hold for for PATs and, and extra points, now you're serving another man to help him be the best that he can be. I was a kicker, so I knew what holders looked for. I knew how how much pressure they, you know, to put on a ball, which way to lean, left or right or back, all of those things, all of those nuances. Um, Because all you're doing is serving humanity. You're serving a football team. You're serving a community. You're serving a city in a region that all cheer for purple. You're cheering, you're serving Purple Nation. And it was an
0: honor for me to be the punter uh,
1: for the Minnesota Vikings for those 10 years.
0: Even though even though the Vikings beat the Niners this year, um, I will say I have a lot of respect for the for the men in purple. <laughs> even though Kirk Cousins uh gave us everything he had and played yes. one hell of a game, I'll tell you, Kirk was wheeling and dealing that game. Um i I was yes, watching the was. game with my brother, and I was like, dude, I don't know I don't know who this guy is. This guy is playing like prime paint manning tonight. Um, and he put on a hell of a show. Um I am Greg, I got to tell you, I'm fascinated by the psychology of kicking and you see it so often with kickers, with punters, a lot of what you just brought up. Um, and it's, it's fascinating to think about, cause I never thought about it until you said it, but for kickers, typically um, they maybe have 40 attempts over the course of a season. And so, you know, and, and, and a lot of their Um, I guess performance is based on their percentage. So we'll take you know kickers as an example, but the same could go for punters Mm -hmm. with with their average, Mm -hmm. with how many balls they got inside the 20, all that good stuff. Um, So every kick matters, but we see it so often where kickers, they'll miss a field goal or they'll miss a PAT and they're never the same. Um, I'm forgetting the the kicker's name from last year, but the Cowboys kicker, he, he won the streak where he missed like six or seven PATs in a row and it started becoming you know, comic when everybody was blasting him on Twitter because <laughs> it was like seemingly every PAT was off mm-hmm. and PATs are, you know, arguably the easiest kick that you can have. Um And so let me, let me stop you there. Okay.
2: The kicker depends on help. Mm.
1: Starting with the center. His most important ally is the holder. And I'm not throwing any holder under the bus because I did it for many, many years. But I have watched and I taught my wife how to watch for a bad hold. You miss a spot, a half an inch left, a half an inch right, the wrong tilt of the ball. And a kicker will never say this. He will never throw his holder under the bus. I'm not saying all of them but a large majority of missed PATs and field goals are because of a missed spot of the holder. Now you can continue your narration.
0: That, I mean, I, it, I just love that I now have a new appreciation for the game that I thought I knew. And what I mean by that is now I actually can watch the holder and see to what you just described, was a good hold? I now have an appreciation for punters. By the way, you mentioned Marquette King um, earlier in this podcast. Dude, I got to tell mm-hmm. you, I wish that guy was back in the league because um, oh, every you. punt, every punt was it, it was just a joy to watch. Um, not only yeah. because he was he was actually good at punting, but to your point, mm-hmm. the charisma, the you know, just the energy that he had, um, I I think was great. I thought he was a great fit in Oakland. Uh, so I'm sad to see that, you know, he, you know, didn't work out, but I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm holding strong that he'll, he'll be back one day. Um, but I I love that you gave me a new appreciation. Greg, I'm walking out of here and this weekend when I sit down and watch playoff football, I'm going to be looking at the holder, man. And I've never once looked at the holder (laughs) in my entire life, but now I'm going to be looking at the holder.
1: (laughs) Yep. Yep. Most, Most people don't, most people don't, you know, and it's all about everybody's trying to to do this, uh, to do the best that they can, right? And I'll share the story as we close. There was a a, a teammate of mine uh, with Cleveland. His name was Gerald Irons. And when I was going through that whole battle with uh, Johnny Evans and Camp and Skladaney and all of those things, he said, "Coleman, man, I'm telling you." He said, "Man, you you just encourage me. I watch you go through what you go through to be the best." And Gerald Irons was just a phenomenal man. And Gerald said, you inspired me to write a poem. And he wrote this poem called To Be the Best. And if you don't mind, we'll close with this. It says, to be the best is my quest. Now, Athletes come and athletes go, but there's something very special about being a pro. On and on towards this goal, I'll strive while keeping my championship hopes alive. And let us not forget the day-to-day concentration for it'll help make us the best in nation. To be the best is my quest. Now, some might just be happy to make the Viking squad, but I'll never be satisfied until I get that Super Bowl wad. And so much happiness, I know it will bring. The thrill of wearing a Super Bowl ring. To be the best is my quest. Now, everything needed, I cannot mention, but I, th- I hope the things that I've said is not beyond your retention. So be the best. That's Gerald Irons.
0: Love it, absolutely love it, um, Greg. I was gonna say, so we typically, so one little tidbit that I like to do um, is we have the previous guest leave a piece of advice for the next guest, um, and it could be life advice, it could be anything. Um, and so the previous guest that we had on the show uh, was CJ Watson, uh, NBA player for the mm-hmm. Golden State Warriors, played with uh, with rookie Steph Curry. Um, and his piece of advice for you, uh, not knowing who you are or, or you know who the next guest was going to be, uh, his piece of advice was dream big, work hard and put God first. Everything else will come. Mm. And mm. I think that piece of advice fits perfectly in what we discussed here today. And if you don't mind, um, if you could quickly just say what that advice means to you. Uh, and then if you could leave a piece of advice for our next guest uh, who... As you may guess, you won't know who, you know, who they are.
1: Here's uh, first quote of keep God first. That's that's phenomenal. That's who I am. And uh, the, the second part was uh, what? Uh, work hard through it.
0: Uh, dream big, work uh, hard.
1: Dream big. Um, I never put a shade on what I wanted to do. Everything that I have wanted to do in life, God has blessed me to do it. People say, man, everything? Yeah. I had the opportunity to jump out of planes and all that. I don't want to jump out of a plane. That doesn't interest me. But I've always wanted to hold a lion in my hand. I've had an opportunity to hold. I'm fascinated by lions. To feel the strength in the,
2: the muscles in that body. Um. To marry the girl of my dreams. You know, here we are 45 years later. Finds. It's so spot on. Uh, Those words of encouragement that he left. And now
1: it's my turn to. To leave. Something for the next guest. It's very, very simple. Keep God first and learn how to punt. (laughs) And I'll give you the acronyms. P, you learn how to push through obstacles. U, understand your strengths. N, learn how to navigate through life, the obstacles and the crap of life. And T, take calculated risks. And if you learn how to punt, then you too will learn how to flip the field and get a leg up on life.
0: Beautiful, Greg. What a way to end the show. Um, I can't thank you enough for coming on today. This has been an absolutely wonderful conversation. I've enjoyed every single second of the past hour and 15 minutes. Um, it's been a joy. I've learned a lot. I've now learned to watch the holder uh, during a kick, which I cannot thank you enough. Um, <laughs>
2: uh,
0: in addition to all the the wonderful advice and tidbits that you left from your own journey Greg, where can we find you, and do you have anything to plug for the audience?
1: Well, uh, you can go to my website, uh, gregcoleman8.com, and uh, the book is available uh, on Amazon or through my website. Uh, And the the name of the book is called Punt, uh, Flip the Field and Get a Leg Up on Life. Greg Coleman, the first African-American punter in the National Football League.
0: Love it. Love it. All those links will be in the description. Uh, so feel, feel free to check those out. I will be picking myself uh, up a copy of your book. Um, can't wait to read it. And I'll definitely uh, maybe share some, some thoughts that I have, because um, I'm sure it'll be a great read. Greg, cannot thank you enough, man. This has been awesome. Thank you so much.
2: You take care, Nick. Bless you, man. Thank you.